Please note, if you're listening to this, you must be 18 years of age or older. This podcast contains adult themes and may include descriptions that listeners could find offensive. Thank you. If you never heal from what hurt you, then you'll bleed on people who did not cut you. Anonymous. Welcome to the Kinky Nerdy Polly Podcast. Just a disclaimer and a warning for this episode that neither G nor I are therapists and therefore cannot give any kind of medical or psychological recommendations. Hello, I'm G. And I'm M. And today we're going to be talking about trauma-informed polyamory. Oh, look, we did it together. Yeah. So this is a fun topic. Um, Yeah, very light. Very so light. Breezy. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, definitely. Before we get into it, yes, I wanted to give an update on why we've been so late on this particular episode, and I apologize to all of our audience folks about that. So I actually got my top surgery two weeks ago, and I was preparing for my top surgery, and then I was recovering from my top surgery. I'm still recovering from my top surgery. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, like, what got me through getting to my top surgery because I've been debating it on and off for a long time. I was like, well, I don't mind my breasts, right? Like, they, for me, I was like, oh, they're just, they're kind of small anyways. Like, they're not really, like, you know, totally dysphoric, except they, they were. And especially in, like, social situations, especially when I wore clothes, I, like, didn't seem like my clothes fit me correctly like that they should. Yeah. And then when I was naked, I basically just ignored that they were there. I also frequently use them as stress balls. I will say that is one disadvantage of having gotten rid of them is that I can no longer squeeze them intensely when I'm feeling stressed out. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But I really, like, decided, yes, I want to go for this. And I, I had thought about it for a long time. And then I finally scheduled with this amazing surgeon. And then I started, like, I was like, okay, it's real, like, I'm doing this. And I was terrified of anesthesia. I've yes. never, I never had anesthesia before. Like, general anesthesia. So, I kept on having this anxiety about the anesthesia. And I talked to a lot of people about it. You know, my therapist, my partners, you mm-hmm. are a partner, and therefore I talked to you about it. Quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, thank you for supporting me, by the way. And also, if X is listening, thanks to uh, him as well for the support. And actually, our little Discord community was so helpful. We have a serious serious chat channel where I had posted my fears and concerns about anesthesia. Because I was terrified of giving control up of my body like you are in such a vulnerable state yes you don't have any control yes because you are drugged asleep yes to the point where you can't wake up even though they're operating on you (laughs) right so i was very nervous about the loss of control aspect and that was something that you know folks in this KMP community or like broader, you know, community, like 
helped me to overcome that feeling. And, and somebody had mentioned, like, you know, you obviously the doctors are trained to do this thing. Yes. So it does help to remember that, like, these are not just some um, randos off the street. Yeah, not a back alley doctor. Right. And, and these are people who want to see you, like, they want to get you to the other side safe and sound. Yes. So that was helpful. And then the second part that I started freaking out about once I started to calm my anxieties about the anesthesia was like, do I actually like want to put myself through anesthesia for something that I'm just going to be like, like, I'm not going to die with my breasts attached to me. Like some trans folk I know are like, they feel like if they have this body, if they continue to have this body, they very suicidal. And that's like, I totally understand. I, I cannot truly empathize, but I sympathize. And someone from the discord community, you know, said like, well, I won't die without a garden. But if I could have a garden, I would choose to. It's like, I deserve to have a garden. Just because I could theoretically keep living with breasts does not mean that I have to. And it means that I can have something better for myself. And now, I'm very happy. I'm glad. I mean, I was already a happy person. Yes. But I feel, like, happier with my body. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy for you. So that's the top surgery update. And now, on to the actual episode. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to start this off, I wanted to talk about what the basis is for trauma-informed polyamory. And much of this is comes from attachment theory. Trauma-informed polyamory is more than just attachment theory. But this is what the basis is of a lot of, well, any kind of trauma-informed relationship things is understanding our attachments to people. Yes. So attachment theory was originally theorized by this British guy named John Bowlby in the 1900s. He kind of came up with, like, there's a secure attachment, and that's if your caregivers were attentive to you but also allowed you independence and that there was a balance there that you felt safe like there was someone you could go to when you needed them and you also felt safe to explore on your own whereas you know other types of parent-child relationships might be might result in insecure attachment and generally there's like these three kind of attachment types and i feel like a lot of people have heard of these already but so there's a avoidant and people who are avoidant, things that might like trigger them or might make them feel insecure and react in a certain way or like bids for emotional closeness, they might perceive people as being too clingy and get overwhelmed, and they might go so far as to avoid relationships altogether. So that's like the avoidant type. And then there's the anxious type, which is the one that would get triggered by fear and rejection, or they're constantly insecure, they're constantly worried that their partner is going to leave them or abandon them. That can also lead to perceived clinginess, because they might cling on to their partner a little bit. Finally, there's the disorganized attachment style, which is a combination of avoidant and anxious, which can be difficult because then you have one part of you is saying go towards, and one part of you is saying go away, and that can lead to a lot of complications in relationships when, when you yourself might even feel conflicted about what you want to do with someone. Yes. So, 
these general types can be very helpful for understanding where we are now might have been influenced by our parent-child relationships. G, do you feel like you line up with any one of these? Hmm. I feel like I have the fear and rejection part of anxious. I... I fear rejection and those avoid relationships would probably be the type that I fit under. I also consider myself to be a disorganized attachment type if I had to pick one. Mm -hmm. But, like, there's obviously, this isn't the one true way of seeing attachment styles. I think we don't need to view these as good or bad, because I know oftentimes the secure attachment is like, that's what you should strive for, that's the good attachment. And any of the other types are bad, and like, you don't want that. But I think these can also coexist, because I, th I often now feel secure in my relationships, while simultaneously I might also fear rejection. I might also simultaneously avoid some things. And there might be a part of me that feels secure. I feel very secure in my relationships with both you and T, but you know, with polyamory, like, I do want to form new relationships, but it's hard because I still fear rejection. Yeah, I think for me, I I also want to form new relationships. So I feel very secure in my relationship with Yuji and as well as with X. I do sometimes want to form other relationships, but I don't want... I think I, I end up being more avoidant because I'm like, it's not so much that I'm afraid of rejection as much as it is, like, I'm afraid of the other person needing things that I can't give them. Okay. Or, like, can't, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So then I'm just like, well, I don't want to disappoint them. Well, I guess that is kind of like a rejection thing. Yeah. A little bit. I don't want to disappoint them, so I'm just going to avoid it. Yeah. But overall, like... I would say I am pretty confident in like exploring things and just seeing where they take me at this point. So the other thing about attachment theory too is that it also is kind of outdated, oversimplified, and reductive. Uh, so even though this is sort of still the gold standard, this attachment theory, Jeremy Akagan has this quote. He says, a serious limitation of attachment theory is its failure to recognize the profound influences of social class, gender, ethnicity, and culture on personality development. So all of these sociological factors are ignored in attachment theory. It's ju it just boils down to parent-child relationship and doesn't take into account anything else. Yeah, I think that actually makes for a great segue into a point I wanted to bring up, which is one of the things I looked up for this episode was the concept of trauma-informed care, mm -hmm. which is more of a medical concept than it is dealing with relationships, uh, I'm going to include this link in the show notes, but there is this link uh, basically sort of talking what, what it actually means to have trauma-informed care. And, you know, the sort of the basic gist of it is that, you know, when we are trying to, you know, help a person medically, like, we need to look at, we need to look at the whole person. We can't just look at, the per like, the problem that they're having right now. We need to look at, like, all the stuff that led up to them having these current problems. And I'm going to paraphrase 
something they said in the article, which is, rather than asking what is wrong with a person, we should ask what has happened to a person. So, you know, you need to, you know, understand. And, you know, for me, this sort of relates to trauma-informed polyamory. It's like when you're in a relationship with a person, it, it is very helpful, I feel like, to understand the context of a person. One thing that I know I've talked to you about, I've talked to you about, and... I don't think I've talked about this on the show yet, so this should be interesting, is, you know, a lot of my personality, a lot of my reactions to things are sort of dictated by my relationship to my father, which has not been the best of relationships. And, you know, that's, that's something that's, I'm, that's going to be a part of me until like the day I die. And so every partner of mine is going to witness these sort of quirks of personality I have with regards to that. And I think it's it's important to to listen to your partner you know, when they talk about these things that happened in their past and not to to listen to them and to because often it's very hard to talk about, you know, be listen and you know thank your partner for being willing to be open to you about that. Definitely, and I I do agree this idea of trauma-informed care is a good starting point. Really important to consider the context, and I think I also can remind myself of that, too. Like, I think, well, it's a natural human instinct to be, to uh, make judgments because it's easy for us. It's, like, neurologically, it's just, like, a very facilitated process. We want to just be like, oh, this person's doing this thing that is, like, quote-unquote bad or it's annoying or whatever it is and then to just be like what's wrong with them and I think reframing it as like you know what happened to them or what is happening now to them how can we how can we tune into their emotions how can we tune into our own emotions so that is something that I have been really working on a lot recently has been like taking this emotion focused approach and emotions are hard for people like, so many people say, like, uh, they don't know how to express their emotions. Uh, I know I felt that way, or that they can't identify their emotions. That can be very difficult. I definitely have felt that. Would you say, G, that you're very, like, in tune with your emotions? I would say that I am in tune, but very guarded with my emotions. Because, I guess this is the episode where I talk about my father, I felt like for most of my life, my father is very emotionally abusive. So this has led me to be very sort of guarded with my emotions and to, you know, I can, I can feel a lot of emotional states, but outwardly I present as being very stoic because, you know, that presents less opportunities for somebody to take an emotional state and use that as like manipulation against me. Right. And I guess this is the episode where we just talk about parent trauma because similarly to Yuji, I had a bad relationship with my mom and I still do and unlike you I did not take the stoic approach I took the overly dramatic overly emotional approach of like when I would get angry I would get really angry when I would get sad I would bawl my eyes out and I was often told that I was overreacting so it was you know it definitely trained me to think that my tears weren't real, that my, my sadness wasn't real. And 
I kind of leaned into this narrative that my family put on me that I was such a quote-unquote drama queen. I leaned into that and I played into it. I used acting almost as a coping mechanism because I thought that if I played the role well enough, i.e. if I expressed the emotion well enough, that it would convey something to them. But ultimately, that didn't actually help very much. And like you're saying, like on your end, you were very stoic, so they didn't have that opportunity to manipulate you. On the other hand, with me, it was quite the contrary. There was always opportunities to manipulate me. But feelings aren't facts. That's something to keep in mind is like, our anger doesn't mean that we're an angry person. Or it doesn't mean that we, that the person who we are angry at is a bad person. But we can tune into other things that the emotion might be telling us. So using just a basis from the movie Inside Out from Disney, have you watched that? Uh, yes, I watched that. I I didn't see that in the notes. I wasn't, oh yeah, I see it now. Okay, I'm, I'm ready now. Okay. So in Inside Out, they represent like key emotions, um, joy, sadness, fear, anger, and disgust. And obviously there's a lot of other emotions you can consider as well, but they work together as a team or not work together, but they're always there. And so one of the things that emotion-focused polyamory can look like is looking into like, okay, there might be anger here, there might be sadness here, what other emotions might be at play. Um, and I thought about this with jealousy. So one of the things, like, like if, if you have insecurities, which everybody has insecurities, I think even the most secure people probably have some insecurity. Like, maybe they just really, they just hate this one thing about themselves. You know? Yeah. At least I think that's, maybe that's not the case. But jealousy happens a lot in any relationship. And, and I think polyamory gives just more opportunities for jealousy to occur. So we can think about, like, what is making us insecure? Is it because we don't think we're good enough? Is it because we're afraid of abandonment? We're afraid of, you know, our partner leaving us for another partner? Like, they've been spending all this time with this new person, and I really miss having that time. So there might be coexisting feelings, too, because you might be really happy. Oh, my partner is, like, getting to experience these wonderful things, you know, and you have a little bit of compersion. And at the same time, you might be like, I really miss doing those things with my partner. Yeah, I I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, I think in our episode about jealousy. But there was a point where, like, one of the, one of the times where I recognized I was feeling jealous was when T entered into a DS relationship with one of her partners. And, you know, I recognized and, like, you know, when I, I recognized that, you know, this was something I could not provide for tea. Like, I am not a dominant person. But I was also afraid of somebody sort of, when a DS relationship, like, molding T's personality and changing her. You know, that's what I was afraid of. And that was a good conversation to have with her about that. I think you just hit on it. These emotions can help us to identify our desires and our fears and to talk them out. It's okay to ask for reassurances from your partner. It's okay to ask for more time with your partner. It's okay to let them know 
I'm afraid that you won't want to do XYZ with me anymore or whatever it is. So I think that emotions are super valuable and at the same time it can be really challenging. Yeah, I mean, it was a difficult conversation to have. I'm not going to I'm not going to sugarcoat it say, oh yeah, I had this conversation with T about my insecurities and my jealousy and it was just a breeze. <laughs> you know, no, it was, it was a difficult conversation to have, but I think my relationship, our relationship was better for it. Absolutely. I agree. If you can talk about it, you should talk about it. It's kind of how I feel. I also wanted to say, going back to like childhood events and traumatic events, while a lot of emotions are conditioned based on past events, like including traumatic ones, childhood events, they're also flexible. So as I had mentioned, we can tune into multiple different emotions. We can often identify, oh, I'm feeling this and that emotion is linked to this past event. But my present self is feeling this and this is what this emotion is telling me. And I want to tune into that and I want to embrace that too. So something that you can think about is like in that situation g and this is just food for thought like you had that fear so fear was really getting at you and jealousy and so you might have had some anger even i don't know might have been a mix of things where was joy like what was joy doing oh sorry we're back in the pixar thing (laughs) we are back in the pixar (laughs) okay sorry i was just Okay, Pixar, yes. Joy, what was Joy doing? Yeah, what, what was Joy telling you in that moment? I was happy that she had found something that I could not provide for her. I mean, I feel like that's one of the, that's one of the nice things about polyamory is that you can watch your partner be happy doing things that you knew that if you tried to do it would make you unhappy. Like, I, I tried being a dominant and it didn't make me particularly happy to do it. I'm not going to say it made me, like, unhappy to do it, but it just... It didn't fulfill you. Yeah. So, you know, I I was happy that T was able to find this thing. But, yeah, there's still the other emotions in there. I think something else, like, in similar situations to you, what I've experienced, too, with my joy is, like, I am afraid of this. And that can, like, with joy, knowing that joy is there, this means I really value my relationship with this person. Like, actually, this is showing me that I really care about them and that I want to, I want to express my fears with them, that I can be open with them, and that's great. So I think that there's also that bit of joy that can come with. Yeah. That, that makes, now that you say it that way, that makes complete sense. You know, it it is a sign that you are invested in the relationship i do i do remember one time i was seeing somebody and we were lying in bed and she was like i'm not really feeling this now i looked at my emotions i was like well you're telling me this and i'm not reacting really badly so i guess i'm not really feeling it either there you go yeah so yeah your emotions can tell you all sorts of things and now on to getting triggered. What do we have? Like, we've been talking about the theory. We've been talking about emotions, trauma-informed care. What happens when we get triggered because of a polyamorous situation specifically? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? How do we cope? Like, what do we do when we are triggered in a polyamorous situation specifically? Because this is about trauma-informed polyamory. We can talk about how to just handle the trigger out in the wild. Yeah. 
how do we specifically handle it in the context of polyamory? I mean, I feel like talking to your partner is like... I, I mean, I hate to say it, but like a lot of this boils down to like communication. Even though I like, I know, I know how hard it can be communicate when like you're triggered. But you know, one of the, I feel like one of the first steps is like just letting your partner like know what's going on, what's going on with your emotional state, and if there's any help they can provide, or if they just. At least for me, like, just letting somebody know what was going on was very helpful. Yeah, letting someone know, definitely. I also think, like, you can really leverage your polyamory circle or your polycule. For example, if one partner triggers you and you are able to communicate with them that, like, you cannot be around them right now, you need some space. Knowing which partners are open to you to go to for, like, potential aftercare or potential, um you know, de decompressing, whether that's by text or by call or it's in person. So I know sometimes when I'm experiencing a trigger, if it's, even if it's not caused by, it might not be caused by anyone in particular, my polycule, but it's just an external trigger. And like X might say like, oh, well, did you talk to GL about that? Or, you know, like encourage me to reach out to friends that I'm really close to. So definitely like, you can leverage the fact that you have a network of people that are connected to you and ideally, you know, if they're your partners, they want what's best for you. So sometimes you might not be able to talk to the partner who triggered you right away. And that might be a good opportunity for you to, if the other partner, another partner consents, to be able to lean on them for a little bit. Have you had personal experiences being triggered that you wanted to highlight as an example and like how you overcame it, G? Sure, I, I feel like it makes for a mildly amusing story. So I went with T to a musical because it was one of her favorite musicals. Uh, it was Gypsy, which I had not seen, like I'd seen the movie version like back when I was like a teenager, but I hadn't seen like more than a decade. So I was only like vaguely I only vaguely recalled the plot of it. Have something about like, you know, there's a cow, a dancing cow at one point, and you know, there's, you know, trying to make it back on vaudeville, and eventually there's like a burlesque dancer at the end. Where these things are, what I vaguely recalled. So we went to go see Gypsy, and the mother, who I think is Gypsy Rose Lee, the the, the main character, essentially. When we started watching the show, I was like, oh, this is, this is my father. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, it's my father kind of writ large, like exaggerated to some extent. Sure. But it's like, oh, this is just, you know, constantly trying to push people to fulfill their dreams. And... I remember thinking somewhere at the beginning of the show, I was like, this is the kind of person who would stand in the wreckages of their relationship and ask, like, why is nobody here to help me? And then, like, towards the end of the show, after she's managed to, like, push everyone away, she's like, why is everybody running away from me? <laughs> so, yeah, that was, that was a difficult show to, to sit through. 
and noticed that I was having some difficulties and I was like, do you want to just go? And I was like, no, it's fine. Like, I can, I can suck it up for, like, the rest of the show. But afterwards, she's like, well, do you want it? Because part of the deal that I got to go to the theater was, like, they gave us commemorative glasses that were specifically branded for the show. And she was like, do you want to keep the glasses? I was like, no. So, yeah, that's, that's my story about being triggered. (laughs) So overall, like, what coping mechanisms i mean partially it's i mean i'm not gonna say these are great coping mechanisms but partially is like i didn't want to ruin this is my present to t like i didn't want to ruin her present by like walking halfway during like her favorite musical so yeah it, it wasn't about like my emotions are real but the moment wasn't entirely about me like, it was about, like, you know, this was my present to tea, and, and to a certain extent, I didn't have to enjoy the musical. Like. This definitely sounds like to me, coming from the emotion focused approach, that there's joy. Yeah. It's like joy is coming in and being like, I know that there's this fear and disgust and anger that you must be, and sadness that you can be feeling right now, but you're so happy just to be here with your partner. You want her to have a good time. Yeah, so. That's kind of what got you through it. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a lot of um, triggering experiences within the context of polyamory. Um, Sort of, and this was, and your example was not about polyamory. I'll give an example like about polyamory. In a previous relationship that I was in, I was very insecure in in the sense that I really thought my partner was gonna leave me and therefore I, I, might have been perceived as clingy. Again, it's that anxious kind of response. And I remember, like, finding out about new partners, like, really late, and, like, not even being told by him, but being told by the new partners, like, and I got really upset. I got very triggered by it. And... A lot of my coping was to rely on friends, obviously, support, and be able to talk through my feelings. Therapy was very important. Also for me, having Buddhism was very helpful to sort of ground me and center me. And looking back on those experiences where I got very, very, I mean, I was severely distressed about some of these situations. I now realize, like, I really value when my partners communicate with me up front about people in their lives. Like, I like, I don't need to know all the details about things, but I would at least like to know, like, I'm, re- I'm developing a relationship with this person. And we've had this sort of thing happen where you started developing a relationship with someone. Yeah. But then didn't tell me until later, and I I was, like, blindsided by that. But because I had already worked through, like, the emotional stuff in a past relationship, I did not have the same triggered response. I just knew, oh, this is my opportunity. This is my joy to be able to tell G that I would like to be more informed. Yeah. I'd like to be a little bit more updated on, like, New people, especially if they are just, like, if they are going to be more of a relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. So, that's something that I personally prefer in my relationships, and that doesn't mean that that's, like, a 
hard limit. Like, I can definitely be with people who just don't want to tell me anything. But then I like, needs to be discussed up front. Yeah. So now, yeah, I feel like I was able to use that experience to better communicate now in my current relationships. That does not make it less uncomfortable sometimes. I do still sometimes get jealous. I will be honest. I've been jealous of you with other people because I'm ace and I'm not that into sex. And like you are super into making out and I'm not really super into making out. And I'm like, what if you find someone who's really great at making out and suddenly I get replaced? That thought has crossed my mind. But I think I'm also able to now say, okay, thanks for telling me that brain. And I trust you. So I trust like that our relationship is not going to be discarded. Yeah. I mean, who would run the podcast with me? Oh, so that's what I'm good for, huh? Running the podcast. <laughs> is that all? Well, Hoagie is pretty cute. The podcast and my cat? <laughs> These are the two things? I thought you'd be happy. I think Hoagie is cute. I mean, I love that you think Hoagie is cute. I don't think many cats are cute. You think I'm cute? Yeah, I think you're cute. Oh, okay. Well, good. Oh, wait, are you a cat? Hold on. <laughs> Do you identify as a cat? No. I feel like this is a new thing. I don't. I was just like... <laughs> You could have been like, well, I'm with you because you're cute and you're compassionate. You really listen to me and we enjoy watching shows together and reading Dick Fight Island. But no, we haven't read Dick Fight Island yet, but we will. But now it's just, oh, because you run the podcast and your cat. I see. I see how it is. Anyways. To finish this episode off, we are going to just, we're not quite done yet, but we would like to bring up resources for folks, talk about what's out there. And we talked about these a little bit during our episode on jealousy. More Than Two is a website as well as I think they have a book. It's kind of an old classic resource that talks about some of the things we discussed. Ethical Slut is also an oldie, but a goodie in some respects. It's not perfect, of course. And then there's this new book that was recommended by someone actually on our polycule. It's called Polysecure, and it is what I would say is the new quote-unquote gold standard of trauma-informed polyamory. I say that because now it is being mentioned everywhere by a lot of people. It's constantly recommended in polyamorous circles. And I started reading it, and I will admit I didn't get through it all. I mean, out of these, I think the only one I've read is More Than Two. What do you think about More Than Two? I mean, it was helpful at the time, just like sort of defining terms, but it might have been even before I started getting polyamory, like T and I did a lot of research before we decided to open up our relationship. So yeah, it was helpful then. I haven't gone back to reread it. Yeah, it is kind of like a beginner, like a basics, which is good. We can always review the basics. But Polysecure, I started reading it and I will say it focuses, it goes over attachment theory. So the basis is in attachment theory, which as we discussed at the beginning of the, um, podcast is kind of outdated and, and reductive. As all theories kind of end up being, they cannot capture every nuance. So just keep that in mind if you read this book. I do think it has some good nuggets. It focuses heavily on the sexuality component of adult relationships. Like it says like something that makes like our adult relationships unique is our sexuality. The, se the sexuality itself was focused on like taking care of your like 
because in a caregiving relationship, like you are in a caregiving relationship with your partners where the caregiving is ideally reciprocal. Like this is what they talk about. In a parent-child relationship, the parent is the caregiver. In an adult relationship with a partner, you are both caregivers of each other. So that should be reciprocal. And they do talk about caregiving in terms of sexual needs. And like for me being ace, I did find it to focus a little bit too much on those aspects, but I can see how for the large majority of folks that that would be helpful. And I just think it would have been nice if they would have clarified that like a sexual component is not necessary within, and maybe they do later on. So I didn't get through the whole thing, but it's still, it still has some really good nuggets. And like I said, it gives a rundown of attachment theory. What I will say is we mentioned some resources. Oh, well, hold on. You have another resource. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I found this website as I was doing research about this, which specifically talked about how to deal with PTSD in polyamorous relationships. It goes over a lot of things we sort of talked about, like communication, trust, and it goes sort of more into detail about what makes up post-traumatic stress disorder. And... I found it useful. I don't think I've ever had PTSD, but I did sort of see glimpses of myself in some of the traumatic reactions that this person talked about. So I'm going to include that link in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah, I'll look forward to reading that. I haven't read that resource yet. So no resource should be taken as gospel truth. And I think one of the things that we want to emphasize is like resist things turning into the echo chamber. So like with the polysecure, it's kind of going around now, it's becoming really hot in polyamorous circles, and that might become like the only conversation that you can have about the this type, this topic. So resist that. Resist the echo chamber. Consider other perspectives. Your friends, other polyamorous folks, your therapists, if they're polyamorous friendly, they can all be resources too. So you can always get insights from anybody, whether they're polyamorous or not. You know, people in your life can be perceptive and helpful. I think that's it. We just had those resources and we will link to things in the show notes. Yeah. If you liked hearing us talk about this light and breezy topic, Trauma Informed Polyamory, you can uh, support us by uh, donating at the link at the bottom of the show notes. And if you'd like to share this podcast with your friends, other partners, metamors, you know, anybody, especially if you think like this is going to be insightful for them, or you want to just share from your heart, uh, please consider sharing this podcast. This is G. This is M. Don't be afraid to love how you love. Love what you love. And love who you love. If you'd like to get in touch with either M or myself, you can tweet us at KMP Podcast. You can find us at knppodcast.tumblr.com or you can email us at kinky.nerdy.poly at gmail.com. And I was like, oh my god. Which episode was, was this? It was um, a Mirror Universe episode. Right. With Mirror Kira? Yes. Yeah. Oh, holy shit. That shit. She has the hots for herself. I know. Hardcore. <laughs> and it was hot. It was hot to watch their interactions, her with herself. And uh, not only that, but Odo, you know, slaps Bashir in the face. Yeah. And see. Twice. Twice. I know. Oh my God. I know. I love how you know the number of times. 
I fantasized about that scene for a long time after watching it. I was like, I want to look up fan fiction about this episode, but X thinks that most of the fan fiction is about Kira, Kira. and herself. But if there's not anything about Odo and Bashir, mm-hmm. I need to write that. 